Fast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the rain. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember. It's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, hey, Randy is winning. He's out. Yes, Randy is out. Look at, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, David Mann. I don't want to hear argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business Sell the team. Hey, welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is our two of the program. Uh, we're going to get things started by playing an interview that I recorded this past week with former Yankees first baseman Frank Tepidino. And Frank uh, has done a phenomenal job with the best organization, you know, being a, a, a returning guest and supporting the whole cause. Of course, I mentioned it last week. They do a great job for uh, college scholarships in regards to kids that you know just uh you know kind of kind of just you know, need the extra, uh, the extra help and support. And, uh, you know, Frank, of course, uh, you know, gets in a lot of different stuff. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, in addition to his playing career, he ends up becoming a uh, New York City firefighter, is at ground zero for the whole 9-11 thing. So a lot of stuff to get into there. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the spot there. Former Yankees first baseman, also played with the Brewers and the Braves, Frank Tepidino. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League first baseman Frank Tepidino. You know, Frank, what's going on, buddy? How you doing, John? Oh. oh, no problem, man. Hey, listen, first, you know, I got a chance to meet you, uh, you know, last week at the uh, the Best Charity uh, event, you know, which helps with, college, you know, scholarships for kids that are, you know, having a hard time getting grants and stuff like that. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your involvement in it and what it means to you. Well, what it is is that I've known uh, Billy and Judy now probably for about... Oh, I would say easy, 10 years, like that. And uh, Billy originally had come into the firehouse to uh, do a little something right after 9-11. And uh, he knew that, you know, I had played with the Yankees in Atlanta. And uh, he just wanted to do a little thing. And it wound up being where, you know, Billy, Billy stayed at the firehouse for about a good 12 hours. I wound up feeding him. I wound up with him in the bed and everything. Now, so how, how long have you been involved with the, the fundraiser? Uh, the fundraiser I've been involved with probably the last six, seven years. 
and uh, we've always, uh, you know, been in contact. And every time that he needs somebody to show up, I think I've been down to, you know, that area of Pennsylvania probably about ten times now. So, uh, we, like I said, we, you know, we've grown really, really close, and so everything that he does for the kids, you know, in that area is just amazing. And I was uh, really happy that he asked me, and I'm just glad that I'm a part of it. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Frank Tepidino. Now, you know, you look, you look, you see what the what the event, you know, and the uh, you know raising the money and stuff like that. It really goes back to the kids, and you know, really getting the testimonials. I'll tell you, that's really what kind of got me. You know, just seeing the, you know, seeing the, the the kids, the young men and women who were either uh, being supported by it or had been supported by it. You know, coming back and just telling the stories of really, you know, where they came from. Some from not so good backgrounds and others from backgrounds that were perfectly fine but you know the bottom line is you know they 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 can use the extra money for college and they they took it and they took advantage of it yeah it's you know it's about giving giving back something you know Billy's been involved in education his whole life and what it is is that giving back to the community and to people that he's come across like you said you know some have a hard time and, and some are okay but it's just Helping these people, and then they all come back, and they they give another helping hand to another individual, and that's the way life is. You know, everybody is not, you know, doesn't have that uh, silver spoon. You know, but these people just make sure that don't worry. Whatever avenue you're going to take, you know, there is one of us to help you, and it's just a great thing to be part of. No, it definitely is, man. And it, that, you know, this is my first time going. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be back next year, absolutely. Now, you know, Frank, of course, you, you had a chance to play, you know, the, the later part of the '60s, the early part of the '70s with the New York Yankees. Uh, when you made your debut, you know, Mickey Mantle was still around, and of course, by the time you know you ended up moving on, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle had retired. What, in your opinion, what was the difference in being part of the Yankees pre-Mickey, or, or you know, while he was there, or f and after he left? Well, what it was, you know, I was real, real young. I didn't belong in the majors at 19 years old. They had taken me from the Baltimore Orioles AAA roster, so they had to play me, you know, one league higher, which is the major leagues. Yeah. You're just an awestruck kid, you know, at 19 years old. Here you are sitting next to your idols. Mickey Mantle, Elston Howard, Whitey Ford, Ralph Houck is the manager, Tommy Tresh is on the team. You know, it, it's just really, really hard. Especially when you're that young, you need more seasoning. You know, and in the olden days, you didn't have all the coaches that more or less lend a helping hand. They were worried about their jobs. They worried about getting the veterans back on track or the guys that had a few years. So the rookies are more or less put on the side and the old typical, you know, just uh, keep your mouth shut. You know, your ears open and just go along the way we do things. And of course, you need a hand. <laughs> no, you absolutely. know, you, do, you, you need a hand at that level. You know, it's a different game. It's a completely different game. You know, you always hear the game's a lot quicker. Sure, the game's quicker, but it, it's just baseball-wise, you know, there's no thinking. You, you've done all that, you know. It's all instinct, but you have. 
have to have those instincts before the play happens, so you you prepare yourself for it. You know. Yeah, very and true. After, yeah, after Mickey's different. You know, Mickey's gone. You know, Treasure's gone. Whitey's retired. How? You know, so it's more or less like a whole bunch of guys put together and let's go out and play the game. It's more or less like uh, going to your playground and getting a bunch of guys together and says, okay, let's go out and play and play against this neighborhood. That's the way it was in those days. No, very, listen, that's, that's a very good point. And you compare it to, like, let's say, uh, the Yankees, the way everything's set up now with the high payroll and everything and how winning is expected. Uh, did you, did, yeah, obviously, you notice the difference talent wise after, you know, after, after the before matching guys were all gone. But uh, was, was it a little bit of a l- less pressure being a New York Yankee in that time? So we all could have done things different. But I tell you, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, a lot of different players that you got to see with the Yankees, of course, with the Braves and stuff like that. Was there anybody in particular that, you know, really gave you that helping hand that you're talking about? You know, the guy that you like, you know what, this guy was really there and had my back and kind of made me into a better player. I, I guess you could say Matty Galente. You know, I played with Manny in the minor leagues, okay, and we roomed together for a few years. And more or less helped me along the way. But then when you get into the major leagues, you always have somebody on the ball club, you know, that's going to give you a hand. Gene Michaels, Thurman Munson, Atlanta, Mike Wong, you know, uh, not so much Allen. You just watch the superstars as they go about their game. Not that you can duplicate it, okay? But you know when the time is to say something, when not to say something. I was just a guy that basically I wasn't loud, I wasn't, you know, rah-rah. I, you know, supported everybody, always made sure I helped the guys behind me. But uh, the coaching system has changed so much. 
Very true, man. Now you move on into 19, uh, you know, 73 with the uh, the Braves, and you have your best season. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you hit 304 that season. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what went right that year with the Atlanta Braves in 73. That's changing leagues, and guys don't know you until it catch up to your weaknesses. That's what that comes down to. I just enjoy, uh, you know, playing in the National League. It's a little quicker. You know, in those days, everything played at a little quicker pace. Not so much as where uh, everything was thought about. Everybody got to go out, went out on the field, play defense. Everybody came back like the old Pittsburgh lumber company. We had the same thing in Atlanta. You know, you wound up with uh, Ralph Gard, Dusty Baker, Mike Lum, Hank Allen, Darrell Evans, Davey Johnson. You just had all hitters on the ball club. We probably went through 30 pitches that year. If we had any kind of a bullpen, okay, we would have probably been able to catch the Cincinnati Reds or the Mets. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a tough thing. You know, we had a good team. It was just a, a lot of fun to be part of it. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, it's John Pialli. I'm here with Frank Tepidino. Now, now, Frank, after you retired, you obviously got involved with the New York City Fire Department, and you, you know you've you've been involved with that for a long time. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your your experience, and you know, actually being there at Ground Zero on 9/11. Well, what it was, I worked for the New York City Fire Patrol. It was run by the insurance company. And what we did was we did the salvage work in all of uh, New York City. And, uh, you know, I had uh, probably about 18 years, 19 years on when 9-11 came about. I was there for the bombing, you know, uh, about five, six years earlier. And then, uh, you know, it came down to the, you know, Day, you know, I lost 349 friends that day. Wow. Not that I talked to each and every one of them, but I probably came across every one during the course of uh, all those years on uh, the fire patrol. We worked hand-in-hand hand with the fire department. And my two sons in New York City fire department. At that time, my son John was with the fire department. Because it's, uh, 
No, well said. Listen, thank uh, Frank. I want to thank you for having some time today. Uh, you know, nice catching up with you, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll speak again sometime soon. Oh, I'll see you next year. Thanks, John. Have a good day. Hope you guys enjoyed that spot there with Frank Tepidino. And like I said, got a lot of good things to say about him. His, you know, what he does for the community and stuff like that is phenomenal. And obviously being a New York City firefighter and everything that he, he's done to, you know, be there to protect a lot of people and save some lives. But listen, we're going to take our first break of the show. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass ball show. Back. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. I'm Karen Siaska Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. After this. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, our two of the radio program here. And one thing I'm going to get into, we talked a, bit, a little bit about it in my uh, my blog. I kind of teased it within the first hour. We're going to get into a little bit about Thurman Munson. And, of course, Thurman Munson, you know, you remember the beginning of August. It obviously brings back the memories, the thoughts of that, you know, very, very sad day in which, you know, he ends up dying in a plane crash. And, you know, it happened on uh, August 2nd, 1979, and the Yankees end up returning after, you know, he was buried in the eulogy speeches, the whole thing, uh, four days later. Uh, they obviously played after that. But, and, and, uh, and I think there's some misconception with the fact that some people say, some people think that that was the Yankees' first game since Munson's passing. It wasn't. They played between then and, and you know, after. They played the third, the fourth, the fifth. And, of course, it was the sixth where uh, Thurman Munson was laid to rest. Teammates Bobby Mercer and Lou Pinella end up delivering eulogy speeches and the Yankees come out there and end up with a game pretty much carried on the back of the veteran Bobby Mercer who, who was obviously known for his success he had early in his Yankee career ends up being traded 
traded to a couple teams, comes back to the Yankees, and, you know, for the ni- in the 1979 season. He hits the three-run homer when they're down for nothing, and the two-run double, which ends up winning the game against Tippy Martinez and the Baltimore Orioles. A couple things that are interesting about Thurman Munson. He was a very good catcher for the balance of his career, which started in 1969. Of course, ends shortly, you know, and obviously too short in 1979 with his unfortunate passing. Um, Because because of the Roberto Clemente rule, Munson was given eligibility for Baseball Hall of Fame in 1981. He received above 15% and ends up remaining on the ballot for the entire 15 years of eligibility. His numbers were good but incomplete. A 292 hitter, 113 home runs, 701 RBIs, 1,558 hits. In spite of his all-star selections, his postseason success, and his presence in the game, it was difficult to make a case for him in the Hall of Fame. Now, I wanted to make the case for him for the Hall of Fame, and it, you know, it's hard. You could say, "Hey, you know, the guy, the guy just didn't play long enough." But what I wanted to do was I wanted to compare him to other catchers that played in that time, some before, some after, but who I would consider the best catchers in the history of Major League Baseball. And, you know, guys that I, I threw up on this list, Mike Piazza, Johnny Bench, Carlton Fisk. And Carlton Fisk is interesting because that's a guy who was his bitter rival at the time and certainly came around the same exact time. as was probably the most comparable guy to him if you really look at it. Gary Carter, Yogi Berra, Yvonne Rodriguez, Bill Dickey, Jorge Posada, and Mickey Cochran came up on my list here. And what I did is I, I tried to be fair with it because all these other players had the opportunity to play way more than 11 seasons. Some, you know, 15 plus, some even close to 20, you know, in Ivan Rodriguez's case. But one thing that Thurman Munson didn't get a chance to do was finish out his career. He, he, was, he was good. He was on a, probably on the decline in his early part of the 30s. He was 33 when he passed away. Now, you know, you would say, is it safe to say that Thurman Munson would have been able to perform at that same level for the next five-plus seasons? Once again, this is all hearsay. This is all, you know, trying to be, you know, the strategic theorist here. But you can't really do that. So what I tried to do, to be fair, is I took the first 11 seasons of all these other catchers, and and I kind of gave you an idea of where they would have stood had they retired at the same time that Thurman Munson, you know, you know, ended up passing away. Thurman Munson, like I said, 1,558 hits through 11 seasons, 701 RBIs. You know, for instance, a couple guys, Mike Piazza, Johnny Bench, were well above that pace. Yogi Berra was well above that case. But really, for the exception of really few others with certain stats, you can make the case that he was on par with just about the rest of those players through their first 11 seasons. You know, we talked about Piazza, 321 average, 347 home runs, 1,073 RBIs, 1,661 hits, and 5,116 at-bats, which was less than what Munson had. Obviously, it's hard to compare Thurman Munson to Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza was a power-hitting catcher throughout his whole career, a guy who hit as high as 370 in a season, and, and, and Munson was unable to do that at that level. Same thing you can say about Johnny Bench, 287 homers, 1,038 RBIs. Well above the 701 that Munson had through his first 11 seasons. 
Yogi Berra, I told you, was probably the other guy that within home runs and RBIs, uh, more than twice as many home runs, 238 and 1,003 RBIs. Munson did have more hits, though. He had more hits than Bench. He had more hits than Barra. In fact, you know, you look at the other players, Mickey Cochran had, had 30 more hits. Uh, Ivan Rodriguez had a couple more hits, but he had more hits than Dickey, than Posada, than Gary Carter, than Carlton Fisk. Um, you know, the hard, it's hard things because you look at the fact that the offensive catcher kind of came around that time and a little later with guys like Bench and Fisk and Carter and, and eventually Piazza and Rodriguez and Jorge Posada. You know, you really before that, at that time, uh, the, only, the only guys who had played before him were Yogi Berra, who had more home runs, Bill Dickey, who had slightly more home runs, and Mickey Cochran, who had just two more home runs. So I, I find it a very interesting argument to make through Thurman Munson being in a Hall of Fame because you leave, it leaves you with the other guys, the non-Piazzas, the non-Benches, the non-Ivan Rodriguez's. And you say, where does he rank against the other players? Well, Bill Dickey was a 322 hitter. Thurman Munson hit 292. Um, 1,434 hits in 4,456 4, at-bats, 179 home runs, 899 RBIs. You can make the case that Dickey was the more productive player. Mickey Cochran, a 321 hitter, 1,588 hits, 30 more than Munson, and, and just slightly less at-bats, 4,945, 115 home runs, 803 RBIs. Cochran was the better player. Jorge Posada was probably a guy that, you know, you could make a case that Munson was probably a better all-around player. Posada just hit 269 in that stretch, 175 home runs in a more of an offensive era, and 676 RBIs, so I would give him the edge over Jorge Posada. Gary Carter. 272 hitter in his first 11 seasons 215 home runs 794 RBIs to me not numbers that were leaps and bounds ahead of Munson but Carter did hit more home runs so that leaves you with Yvonne Rodriguez 304 hitter 196 home runs at that time 769 RBIs I think Munson was close enough to what Yvonne Rodriguez did and, and who else is left on my list I believe I went through everybody so you make the case that Munson kind of is towards the bottom in regards to these these guys through their first 11 seasons but one guy i didn't mention was carlton fisk and carlton fisk had a very good career which ended of course with his time in chicago and what, what ends up being interesting about this is fisk did lose some time because of injury early on in his career but what i wanted to make fair about this what i wanted to make this fair assessment the fairest argument you can make is let's say you had your first 11 cracks in the big leagues and that was it and if Carl, that was a case with Carlton Fisk, if he retired after his 11 seasons, he had a 284 average, which was less than Munson, 1,097 hits, which was severely less than Munson, 3,860 at-batch, which was severely less than Munson, 162 home runs, which was more, but 506 RBIs, which was way less than Munson's 701. So you can make the case that Fisk, who ends up becoming a Hall of Famer, was below and less than the pace that Munson had set to that point. So if you want to make a case that Thurman Munson should be a Hall of Famer, then you would point to the fact of Carlton Fisk's stats. Carlton Fisk ends up making a Hall of Fame, of course. And, you know, he, you know, Munson was rumored to probably leave the Yankees eventually to finish his career with the Cleveland Indians, where he was happy to be home. And he, listen, he, he, he was there with Fisk. He was there with Carter Dickey. 
and you know similar career hits with bench Piazza and Rodriguez through their first 11 seasons. Now you say Roberto Clemente, if he if he played only 11 seasons, if he passed away after the 1966 season instead of 1972, would he have made the Hall of Fame? He had a little more than 1,800 hits at the time. I think you would have said the same thing about Clemente as you did Thurman Munson if he passed away at the same time that he did, 11 years into his big league career. Of course, Clemente tragically dies at the end of 1972, December 31st, the whole thing. You know, you look you look at his stats after 11 seasons. Was obviously wasn't it what it, what it was after 17 seasons. And, and I think it's very interesting to real to really look at it. Another guy that has to be mentioned in this is Lance Parrish. Hit well over 300 home runs, drove in a thousand runs in his career. You know how, how much of the vote he received when he was eligible for the Hall of Fame in his first year? 1.7 percent. 229 homers, 767 RBIs, and was 1,237 for 4739 through his first 11 seasons for the record. So, you know, that, that, that could kind of counteract it a little bit. Thurman Munson's not in the Hall of Fame. He's honored by the Yankees like he very well should have been. But that's probably where it stands with him. And it's hard to make the case that a guy who played 11 seasons, whether, you know, you die tragically like he did, should be considered for baseball's Hall of Fame. So now I'm going to play an interview that I'm recording today with former Major League outfielder Richie Scheinbloom. And Richie, of course, played with the Cleveland Indians, Washington Senators, Kansas City Royals, Cincinnati Reds, California Angels, and St. Louis Cardinals from 1965 to 1974. Was a switch hitter, spent a couple years in Japan, and also had a ridiculous couple seasons in the minor leagues in AAA in 1970 and 1971. So hopefully, hopefully you guys enjoy the spot with Richie Scheinbloom. Hi, this is John Pielli, Passball Show. MTR Radio Network. I'm here with former Major League outfielder Rich Scheinbloom. Rich, what's going on, buddy? Very good. Thank you, John. Hey, th- hey, you know what? I actually uh, I did the uh, the research and got the whole uh, you know the whole pronunciation right. I wanted to make sure that I didn't mess that up. I didn't until I was 14. 11 until my name. Yeah, actually, if you go on Baseball Reference, it it has the correct pronunciation and like parentheses. So, uh, like, I always want to make sure I get that right. The last thing I want to do is say somebody's name wrong. <laughs> but uh, you know, of course, Richie, you had, you, had, you had a chance to play. You know, you know, for a be- better part of the '60s and the '70s. Um, you know, you know, you, you you came you came through really with the uh, the Cleveland Indians early on. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career and breaking into the majors. Uh, when I broke in with Cleveland, I thought I had a good chance of playing uh, very quickly, and then they started bringing me a lot of better outfielders, and when they brought me up, uh, I was Colorado's uh, understudy, and Rocky is as good as they come. Uh, my problem was I had trouble hitting in cold weather uh, throughout my career, and uh, so that no matter what I did in the minor leagues, uh, the first month of every season in the big leagues was just horrible. Warm weather hitter. So how did you? How were you able to deal with that? It was a situation where it was just it was just cold, and you just had a hard time hitting. Well, I had arthritis that nobody knew about, and you know you take one bad swing off the end of the bat, and your fingers swell up, and it's tough to get that feeling away for a while. And that was just part of it. You know, a lot of things considered, I didn't strike out much. I just just had bad aprils. 
<laughs> yeah, now, now obviously you came up as a switch hitter, and you know it was something that you know you were able you were able to uh, really really hit well from both sides of the play, which probably gave you more options for the teams that you were playing for early on, right? Yes, it did. And uh, I was actually a natural right-handed hitter, but I started doing this when I was like six or seven years old, so it was, was kind of second nature. Yeah, now as as you move on, you end up you know with the with the Senators, and you really have your best season in uh, what was it 1972 with the Royals. You hit 300, you drive in 66 runs, you get a chance to play. You know, pretty much be an everyday player for the first time in your career. Tell us a little bit about that season and what it meant to you. Well, every time I played every day, I hit 300 no matter where I was. And uh, one of the great secrets to hitting is who hits directly behind you. In Kansas City, I had uh, John Mayberry. With the Angels, I hit 328. I had Frank Robinson hitting right behind me. Uh, Nicaragua, I hit 331 with the great Cuban player, Varego Alvarez. Uh, I hit 388 in AAA with Jeff Burroughs hitting behind me. It depends. Who's going to pitch around me to get to those hitters? No, very true, man. I tell you, really, before that, you had a, two, two, of the, two of the bigger seasons you could imagine for a minor league player. In 1970, you hit 337 with 24 home runs. A year later, playing for Denver in a, in a Washington organization, you hit 388 that season. Tell us a little bit about about that season and you know what what really what really allowed everything to click for you. I was actually over 400 most of the season. I, I was hitting like 411 with two weeks to go in the season. And I uh, came back down to earth and wound up at 388. And uh, it was just uh, a good league for me to, to hit in. 40 pitchers from that league went to the big leagues the next year. Yeah, so I tell you, it tells you something about how, how good of a hitter you were. Now, you know, you end up you end up after you're done playing in the majors, you end up going to the Japanese uh, Central League. One second. Nice noise. <laughs> no, it's a little bit of background music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was in Japan for two years. Uh, my second year, I became the second foreigner to hit 300 in the Central League. Yeah, was that something you enjoyed playing in Japan? Was that something that you, you know, you, you're glad that you did? It was a little difficult, but I had a good time. Looking back, it was a great cultural experience. Now, did you consider trying to make a comeback into the majors after that? Well, when I came back after the second season, I severed my Achilles tendon playing basketball. And in uh, those days, uh, you know, it was uh, 10 months in a March of Dimes brace. <laughs> and then, you, you know, you, you really can't run anymore. Now, you, do you think that if you had a chance to maybe play in, like, this generation as far as the technology and everything, you could have prolonged your career a little bit? I, I would have enjoyed that. I, I noticed a lot of the, this might sound funny, a lot of the talks seem a little uh, shorter. I think today's players are bigger and stronger, probably better athletes, and I hope this doesn't come out wrong, but I don't think they learn the fundamentals the way the people from my generation did. We learned from the generation before us, and we listen. From what I understand, today's players don't like listening to the older players, but that's third-person hearsay. 
no, I tell you, you got to get a lot of facts and a lot of uh, people's other statements to really back that up. And, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it's a shame. I mean, you see the way the game has changed over the years. You look from the way the game was played 20 years ago to 40 years ago to even before that. Uh, to me, to me, I actually agree. I think that, uh, you know, you look at the way the players play the game and how much they care and how much they want to, they, they want to learn from the guys that played it before them. I, I agree. You, you definitely don't see that right now. I think a lot of the teams rely on the three-run home run in the eighth inning. No, I tell you, it's a big, it's a, it's a big difference. You get that, you know, you, you know, you have a better chance of, of winning games if you get that home run like that. But it doesn't always happen. It's kind of an all or nothing uh, routine. And you could kind of make that case really with the amount of strikeouts there are in a game. You know, hitters, you know, thirty years ago, obviously, you know, hundred years ago, would, would do anything they can to make contact with the with the baseball when they have two strikes. Now, now a hitter comes up there and they're they're swinging for defenses with two strikes, just like they would if they get a first-pitch fastball. What I see is the big difference between uh, the game today and when I played is that split-fingered change-up. Like, a batter sees at least one of them every at-bat, and I guess it's similar to a fork ball, which very few pitchers had then. And thank goodness I didn't have to face it every day. (laughs) Things-ups were not my forte. (laughs) You think you'd have a chance to hit that pitch at all? What if they gave me a tennis racket? (laughs) All right, Richie, listen, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the show. And let's stay in touch, man. I hope to maybe speak to Gay sometime in the near future. Very good. Thank you. All right, thanks a lot, Richie. Yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed that interview there with Richie Scheinbloom and, of course, the outfielder from the 60s and 70s. We're going to take our next break and finish up the show, Passball Show. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. Flippin' Out Radio Production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise an MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. MTR Radio Network, back after this. Ace is empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Ace empty vlog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog.
Yeah, welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, finishing up this uh, program for today. And, you know, I'm going to get into a little bit of the divisional races and stuff going on in Major League Baseball. You look looking at the fact that the divisional races, particularly in the National League, have gotten themselves to a point where, in my opinion, they're pretty much done. And you look at the fact that the Atlanta Braves are 13-plus games up on the Nationals. Uh, the Dodgers are starting to break away from the Arizona Diamondbacks. And you got the Pirates, Cardinals, and Reds in the Central Division. And you, you pretty much know to this point that the wild card is going to go to the other two teams in the Central. You look at the Washington Nationals, continue to be a disappointment. I think a lot of people think that they have something left. They have the ability to go out there and uh, improve. Go on at 10 out of 12, 17 out of 20. Certainly what you need to see done if this team's going to go in that right direction and be that team to make a push like everybody thought that they would in the, in the, you know, the beginning of the season. Going to the American League, that's where the pennant races are going to be more interesting. That's the baseball that you're going to want to watch if you're a fan uh, of Major League Baseball. You want to see how the American League East ends up panning out. You got the Red Sox leading the Rays by a little bit. The Orioles are still in it. The Yankees are still hanging in there. You got the Central with the Detroit Tigers and a couple game lead they have over the Cleveland Indians. The fact that the Kansas City Royals are still alive. And then you got the West, where the Oakland Athletics and the Texas Rangers are in it. So you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And if you want to count the Yankees, nine teams out of the 15 in the American League East have a legitimate chance here. And in the National League, you got five teams that are pretty much set. And then you only have one more team that's over 500 out of anybody in the entire league. And it's the Arizona Diamondbacks, who are a game over 500. Obviously, the American League has taken advantage of interleague play that you know the interleague play between the American and National League is the difference between the pennant races that you have in the American League and you don't have in a National League but one team that I took a lot of time to kind of uh, go out there and give a hard time to when things weren't going right is the Los Angeles Dodgers and you look at them right now the way they sit in a National League Western Division 13 games over 500 a ridiculous amount of good baseball that they've been playing and they deserve a little credit I mean, I was there to bash him at the beginning of the season, talking about the high payroll, the amount of money that they spent, and how things were just not going well. It didn't matter what kind of money they spent. It just was not going anywhere. And it started with the recalling of Yesiel Puig. And it's obviously gone forward with the play of Hanley Ramirez. And Hanley Ramirez is a guy that they brought up last year from the Miami Marlins in that trade. And it seemed like he was a little bit of a disappointment. And obviously, he's had his injury problems this year. But you look at the fact that he's hitting 361. Yesiel Puig is hitting 373. And those are two guys that are carrying the Los Angeles Dodger team. And you, you very easily and quickly forget about the other players that they have on that team. Matt Kemp will eventually be in a lineup. Hopefully, he's stays healthy. Carl Crawford is a guy that, uh, you know, is, is certainly capable of doing some very good things. Andre Ethier. And then you forget Adrian Gonzalez is on that team, too. 15 home runs, 66 RBIs, 297 hitter. A very steady guy, a durable guy, a guy who's going to stay healthy and go in there and get his at-bats. And all of a sudden, you remember that the Los Angeles Dodgers have a pretty stacked team. And you put a lineup together that has Kemp and Ramirez and Puig and Adrian Gonzalez. It's not bad. 
and, and you know they have the ability to stick where they are right now in the standings and make a serious postseason run. The reason that I've always said that I thought the Los Angeles Dodgers were just a week or two away of getting themselves back to where they need to get to is their starting pitching. Any team that runs out, Clayton Kershaw and Yunjin Ru and Zach Greinke, you know, legitimately has a chance to win all three of those starts every time they go around. And of course, they've gone out there and they made the trade for Ricky Nolasco. They got guys like Chris Capuano uh, filling out the rotation right now and obviously could be in the mix for another starting pitcher if need be. But you look at their bullpen with Kenley Jansen and Brandon League. Brandon League has struggled, but J.P. Howell has pitched well. Belisario has pitched well. Paco Rodriguez, the 22-year-old left-hander, has gotten a job done as a lefty specialist in that bullpen. And this is a team that I think, is, you know, certainly we, we could have made the case at the beginning of the year, was very, very on the verge of wanting to go for it. Every move that they made in the offseason had to do with them going for it. Every move they made last season – for trading for Hanley Ramirez and making a trade with Boston that brought them Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford and Nick Punto and Josh Beckett. And, of course, Josh Beckett is out for the season. But, you know, this is a team you know that's missing a lot of that starting pitching that they had at the beginning of the season but has retained the most important parts of it, and that's Kershaw and Greinke and Rio. And these are three guys that are going out there giving a the team a legitimate chance to win every time they go out there. They're three top pitchers. If you're team facing them in a race in September and you run up against the three of them uh, you'd be happy to be able to try to steal one game uh, you know without that there's really not much of a chance to do anything and the postseason looks very good for the Los Angeles Dodgers this is a team that I think can go out there and win themselves a National League pennant you know looking at the rest of the teams in, in, in the league they look like the top team right now because all of a sudden you get some wins together the fact that they're 13 games over 500 and and they're running away right now, starting to pull away from the pack in a National League Western division. Now that they have this all together, who's to say that they're not that much better than the Braves or the Pirates, the other two potential division winners? And if the Cardinals and the Reds got to play each other to get into the next round, obviously it doesn't bear too well for those teams. And I'm going to go on a, on a limb and say it right now. The team that's a favorite to win a National League pennant is the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the National League division races, the wild card races, you know, w- you know, we're going to figure out who wins the NL Central. Yes, that's still a race. The Cardinals are in it. Even the Reds are very much in it. They, if they could go on a nice run, they got to have a very good chance of winning that division. But the five playoff teams in the National League are set. And I'll say this right now. I'll say this on August the 6th. 2013 with two months to go the Dodgers are the best team in the National League and the five teams have been set you can't say the same thing about the American League and the way things have worked out in the American League that that's where the best part of baseball is coming it's something that you guys are going to enjoy like I'm going to enjoy watching to see the Tampa Bay Rays and how they end up competing with the Boston Red Sox. To me, that's going to be the best divisional race. Not Pirates, Cardinals, but it's going to be Rays, Red Sox. And the way that, you know, Matt Moore being on the DL is going to hurt them. Absolutely. But, you know, guys like Price and Hellickson and Chris Archer, Alex Cobb when he comes back, their starting pitching is phenomenal. 
the question's going to be, what are they going to get from them offensively? Of course, we know Will Myers is up there. Through 39 games, he's hitting 329, eight home runs, 30 RBIs. He is that offensive bat that they've been looking for all season. Now, they got some other holes. They got guys who have been marginal players that may be overachieving a little bit. A guy like Kelly Johnson's having a good year. 48 RBIs to this point. James Loney, yes, he's on the decline, but he's done a very good job. And, you know, you're looking at these other players, the Zobris, the Desmond Jennings, the Matt Joyce's, and can they step it up maybe another level? And, you know, maybe this team isn't as bad offensively as we think. I'm still down on them offensively. I don't think they have enough firepower in that offense to be able to compete with the other teams in a division. But their pitching has been that good. And we say all along, pitching wins ball games. So the question I have for you, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, raise Red Sox. Who do you got taking that, that division? I'm going with the Red Sox because of the PV move and because they have a better overall team. You know, in regards to bat- battling with the with the other teams in the division, I think they're going to be able to win a lot of more divisional games. Uh, I like I like their offense so much better than what I like in Tampa Bay, and you know, even you know guys like Johnny Gomes and Shane Victorino coming up with big hits when they need to. Stephen Drew, now that he's healthy, you know what he's able to do. Of course, Pedroia and Napoli and Ellsbury, and you know, uh, you know what they have with the pitching. I think they have an advantage right now, and you look at Jake. PV, who made his first start, got the win, seven innings, two runs, uh, you know, getting his first win in a Boston Red Sox uniform. They got Lester. They got Lackey, who's, who's pitched phenomenal this year. Clay Buckholz is coming back. The bullpen, in spite of not having guys like Hanrahan and Bailey, still has Koji Uhara, who's pitching his best baseball, pretty much on par with where he's been over the last couple of years. Junichi Tozawa, Craig Breslow, Andrew Miller. These, these are all guys who could all throw the ball very hard. And I like the Red Sox in this race. But, you know, moving forward, you got the Tigers and, of course, the Cleveland Indians who are kind of upstart. They've, they've gotten themselves back on the track where they need to be right now. Uh, I like the Cleveland Indians. I predicted them to make the playoffs at the beginning of the year, partially because I was down on Tampa Bay. So before you give me kudos for uh, having faith in the Cleveland Indians, uh, you got to look at the fact that I didn't have Tampa Bay being anywhere near as good as they've been. I thought offensively they would struggle to score runs, and after a while it would take its toll on the starting pitching. I was wrong. Tampa Bay is in it to the end. The Cleveland Indians, I think, are a very well-balanced team. I think right now you look at the fact that they are starting to come up with some struggles in the pitching department. And part of it has to do with the fact that they don't really have a lot to back Justin Masterson. Justin Masterson, by a mile, is their ace. He's got more strikeouts than innings pitched. Uh, He's a very durable guy, 13 wins to this point. But what do you expect out of guys like Corey Kluber and Scott Casimir and Zach McAllister and even Ubaldo Jimenez and Ubaldo Jimenez has taken a step up he has done a better job this season he's pitching to a low four ERA he's got a chance to go out there and win but he is not the guy that they acquired in that trade with the Colorado Rockies I have some concerns with their bullpen Chris Perez blew another save the other day Brian Shaw has struggled at times Joe Smith's been okay but from the left hand side they haven't really had anybody to step up Rich Hill is a guy that they brought in they were hoping could take the spot left by uh, Tony Sipp when he was traded. That hasn't worked out. Nick Hagedon, the left-hand pitcher, has not gotten a job done. And you look at 
the way things have turned out, the bullpen is something that scares me. And especially in a rotation, it's not going to give you innings outside of Masterson. And I have a little bit of an issue with that. I think that the Cleveland Indians are going to be able to score enough runs. But now I have an issue with their, with, with their pitching staff. And right now, if the season were to end today, they would have an edge barely over the Baltimore Orioles and would be that team and the Texas Rangers and they'd be in the postseason. But, you know, listen, I think it's going to be a race that's going to go down there. You got right now the Indians and the Rangers who would be the two teams getting in with the Orioles a tad behind. Uh, is that really where the race exists? Is there going to be anything more? Are you going to get anything from the New York Yankees? Uh, you know, is, are the Kansas City Royals for real after their nine-game winning streak? And that's a very good question to ask. You're going to have a lot of interesting uh, races in the American League as opposed to the National League. And that's where I'm going to spend a lot of the time paying attention to Major League Baseball. I want to see if the Yankees, with the guys coming back, with A-Rod and with Granderson and with uh, Derek Jeter potentially coming back, I want to see if they're going to be able to put something together here. Because they overachieved for the first month or two of the season and have struggled immensely since then. And those are things that all have to be looked into in regards to what's going to happen in these races. If the Yankees are done, what does that mean for them going forward? Are they going to get to a point where, let's say, they get under five? Are we going to start talking about 2014? Because obviously they will in New York. In New, New York, it's about now or just throw in the towel and talk about next year. And it's something you're not used to seeing with the New York Yankees. And in a day where I've had a chance to speak to some former Yankees and Jim Lairitz and Frank Tepidino, who, of course, played in very different eras. Frank Tepidino got a chance to play the last year with Mickey Mantle in 1967. And you look at the fact of, you know, where the Yankees were at that point. They had dropped in the standings. They weren't the team that they were during Mickey's prime. And, it, you know, after that, the early part of the 70s got a little worse. And you look at Jimmy Lairitz, another guy who played during a bad Yankee era at the beginning in 90 through 92. Buck Showalter's first year was a losing season. Then he got to be part of some teams that got better in 93 and 94 and 95. And, of course, the 96 World Series championship where he hit the home run off of Mark Wallers. So where are the Yankees in relation to that? Are they in a decline? Are they dropping to a point where we're going to go through another one of those eras of the late 60s, of the late 80s and early 90s? Is this where we're going to in a land of New York Yankees baseball? But Brian Cash is going to have a lot to say with it. It's interesting to see if the suspension for Alex Rodriguez ends up staying pat where it is, because if that's the case, then he's going to miss all next year into the following season, giving the Yankees some payroll flexibility. If he's not, if the suspension is reduced and, you know, only a prorated portion of his salary, uh, the Yankees are freed up from, from a portion of next season. That's going to give the Yankees less resources to be able to keep their, their their payroll and try to circumvent what is a soft cap at $189 million, the luxury tax, luxury tax threshold and the whole thing. So a lot of different things to think about because you look at the way the Yankees have prepared. The Yankees have spent money this year with the thoughts of being able to have extra money next season. And those are all things to, to certainly consider. Do the Yankees make a couple bold moves and try to be very cautious with the other moves? Are we going to see a lot of younger Yankee players just to take the bare minimum of the league salary to try to help them address some needs in other spots? What are you getting out of Derek Jeter? What are you getting out of guys coming back from injury like Teixeira, like CC Sabathia, and guys like that who are getting old Older. Do you bring back Hiroki Kuroda? 
What do you do in a closer's position? You give it to Robertson. How are you gonna, are how are you gonna be able to, uh, you know, bridge the gap to get to him? Are you gonna bring in another reliever? Is that gonna cost you money? Are you gonna make a trade? So many different things to think about in regards to the New York Yankees of next season. And obviously, we're gonna bring it up on other past ball shows, on other programs here on the MTR Radio Network. There's a lot of time between now and then. And if you're a fan of the New York Yankees, if you are the New York Yankees, you want to figure out what you got to do to get yourselves going right now and make a run this season. The fact that some of the players are back, they got healthy bodies in there. Can they make enough of an impact to get the New York Yankees back into the race right now? But listen, I want to thank everybody for tuning into the program. Thanks to Jim Laritz. Thanks to Frank Tepedino. Thank you to Richie Scheinblum. And uh, we'll get back to you next week right here on the MTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show.